Well, it's our privilege tonight to turn back in the study of God's Word to Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 6. This amazing chapter, again, it's a section of which we know the story well. It's a joy to jump in and see the details. And This is one of those chapters that if you were expecting the Bible writer to write for our entertainment, then the writer miserably failed in this chapter. Not that the story isn't compelling, the story is very compelling, but there are so many details that the author left behind. Like what in the world happened while he was there all night long in the lion's den? So many details, and yet there is a particular purpose. Daniel barely talks about himself, but he indeed is a major character through this chapter. In fact, there's no elaboration of the details, no exaggeration of the events. He talks very plainly, very abruptly, and directly about the details. There was a, a, an apocryphal tale by the title of Daniel, Bell, and the Snake written in the 2nd century B.C., where the prophet Habakkuk is said to have been transported from Judea into the lion's pit where he gave Daniel stew and bread for Daniel's fire and so he can eat that night. The biblical writer doesn't even go there. No fanciful details, no explanation of the angel, no explanation of the events. It is just the plain story laid out with a kind of directness and a kind of honesty that leaves us in the awe when we read through it, trusting the writer even more. So it's not written for our entertainment. This chapter is written for our instruction. As such, it almost even kind of establishes for us the principles how best for us to operate. We communicate not for entertainment. We communicate for edification. And there's deed, there's much in this chapter for us to be edified by as we head through it. It's believed that the events here in this chapter occurred after Daniel had entered into the Assyrian or, or the uh, into the Medes and Persians' kingdom, but before Cyrus had come and decreed to let the Israelites rebuild their city. Chronologically, of course, and even literarily, chapter 6 here, the events occur before later when Cyrus is going to decree for Israel to return. And it's significant of that because you see now the prominent role that Daniel has in forming a relationship with this new king that God is ultimately going to use to preserve Israel and to allow them to return which is then going to initiate a series of events that will lead to the coming of the Messiah to the exact day and the events that will unfold of God's final timing. But more of that to come in the weeks ahead as we continue through Daniel. What is significant here is that what we see is God's preservation of his man and the preservation of his man for a particular reason because Daniel is going to be used by God to communicate God's final purposes. The book is filled with miracles, not only, of course, the preserving of Daniel in the lion's den, but even the first few verses start with a miracle. They actually find a politician with no fault whatsoever. Okay, some of you are listening. Good. (laughs) Daniel is the focus, and Daniel is, again, writing to a Gentile nation, as we noted, from 2 to chapter 7 is written in Aramaic to the Gentile nations, and we saw the parallel of chapters 2, 7, chapters 3 and 6, chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 3, the deliverance of the friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, parallels with the deliverance of Daniel here from the lion's den. So there is similar themes And here, this author, again, Daniel, is recounting the particular events that he he experienced in this time. And so as we walk our way through this 
this uh, chapter. Again, I'm holding back the temptation of breaking it up too much over multiple weeks. just want to look at the picture in one big snapshot so we see this whole story. And what we'll see is just eight different aspects to this story. And what we need to remember is this. We need to remember that our faith is lived out until the very end. No matter the past expressions of God's glory, the past expressions of His deliverance guarantees nothing into the future. We live out our faith until the very end. And we come again to this stage of Daniel's life where he is well into his 80s, probably almost pushing 90. He's in this period of time which most would be retiring, cutting back, and here he is thrown right into the middle of events. Notice the as this story starts to unfold, we see the first of all, the distinguished leader in verse 1 through 3. Here's what the text says. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. And these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. You see here the distinguished leader, Daniel. There is some debate as to this Darius. Who is Darius? Who does it refer to? Some have argued that it is someone different than King Cyrus, that there was another king, a King Darius, maybe even an official Mede. While king, well, the Persian king was Cyrus, the Mede king was Darius, some believed, and that's the argument. And the argument is because there is no account for, for a Darius in this time period, so some have concluded that the Bible is in error. But there are other answers to the question. In fact, there is the possibility that the term Darius is actually a title that would be given. There have been cuneiforms that have been found where inscriptions were written on it, where Darius, uh, which is a title of Lord King, has been given to various Medo-Persian kings. So this would be like a title, like the most reverend, in this case it would be the Lord King, the Lord King Cyrus would be the idea. And there have been many, in fact, inscriptions throughout time where the title Darius was used for various Persian kings. It's likely the idea that has taken place here. For a few other reasons, textually, we would take that as well. The fact that this person, uh, this King Darius, was, had the ability to set up 120 satraps and officials to govern the whole kingdom, demonstrated he had great authority over the whole kingdom as well. Notice at the end of Daniel chapter 6, you see in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 28, we would then would take this phrase here, this last verse, when it says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word and there would be translated as that is or even. So Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius even in the reign of Cyrus or that is in the reign of Cyrus. It can be translated that way. So the point being that this Darius, who had authority, this title is a title for King Cyrus, and it is during this time that Cyrus had appointed these leaders. And he set it up in which he would be able to manage his whole kingdom, having three commissioners, under those three commissioners, 120 satraps. This is the idea of having mayors and governors and then a president. That's the idea. There is this particular authority set up, and Daniel distinguished himself. Notice how he distinguished himself. Verse 3 indicates it. He was among the commissioners and satraps. He possessed an extraordinary spirit. Again, this is the same term used previously about Daniel back in chapter 5. He had an extraordinary spirit. He was different than the rest of the leaders. He continued to set himself apart. 
could have been his personality. It could have been his wisdom. could have been his ability to communicate. It could have been his success. I think it's that he regularly brought truth. He was extraordinary. He was dependable. He was insightful. He was able to lead. And in this, he continued to set himself apart to the point, and I think here's the crux of the whole matter, that the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. That even the other commissioners recognized they couldn't keep up with this Daniel. Daniel was about to be exalted above them. He had this kind of extraordinary ability to do something particular. And again, the text indicates that they would be able to protect the king. They would guard over the king's possessions so that he might, as verse 2 says, might not suffer loss. He looked out for the king's best interest. He cared for the king's resources. He managed on behalf of the king. To put it simply, you like a guy like this around if you're a pagan king because everything he does prospers. You want to be successful? You find the guy who is prospering, you put him in charge, and you let him accomplish his good work because obviously he is blessed. And that ultimately created hostility for Daniel. And that's what leads us to the next point, verses 4 through 9, the deceitful leaders. The deceitful leaders. Notice what the text says there. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may, be, may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Here we see the deceitful leaders. We recognize in the midst of this that they were, of course, as the end of verse 3 indicates, because Daniel was being exalted, they were filled with jealousy and they tried to find some kind of ground to discredit Daniel. As he was being lifted up, as he was being acknowledged, they needed to bring him down because his performance was making them look bad. And of course, what did they begin to do? They began to criticize his entire work. They began to judge his performance, to see where he had done something wrong. And again, notice as 4, 4 indicates there, they wanted to find some kind of ground of accusation. They wanted to find some kind of corruption, some way in which at the end of verse 4, there was negligence, something in him that he had failed to do that they could come and bring a charge against him. And they could, as the text says, find nothing. I don't think it means that they didn't have any charges. I think it means they just couldn't actually come up with a charge that they could justify. I'm sure they had all kinds of charges in their minds, but they would freely share with one another, freely stir one another up. But when it came down to actually having some kind of evidence, they could find nothing. And it wasn't because they weren't looking. It's because there was nothing there. A time like this where the people would buy influence and take advantage of their position and use their authority for their own gain. There had to be something in Daniel and they could find nothing. And of course, we could see why. Because everything that Daniel did, the Lord blessed. 
And up to this point, Daniel was blessed over and over again as God used him to accomplish his good purposes. So Daniel had no need to take advantage of the system. God continually protected him through it. No no negligence, no corruption. He was a faithful leader in every way, skillful in all of his services, and he continued to demonstrate that he didn't need corruption to advance. He continued to be faithful. And so they decided, of course, there, verse 5, the only thing we can do is find something in his law, the law of his God, the following of his God, something in his commitment to God to cause a problem. Because we're not going to find anything else, they determined. We won't find any other ground. And that leads, of course, to the to the degree of their desperation. They can't find anything in the man. They'll have to find it in his religious practices because they could find nothing. Of course, verse 6 then comes with the idea. These commissioners, these leaders, they all come pouring in, crying out. And the idea behind the phrase here is that they come in in a hurry. They come in in a ruckus. King Darius, live forever They come in filled with commotion, speaking these wonderful words that they have just decided that everyone has gotten together. All of the leaders have decided this would be the best thing, that we would set you up as God for the month. 30 days of being God. This is the idea. 30 days, everybody must come to you. 30 days, you give all the answers. 30 days, you receive all the direct Adulations. You be consulted. You're the ones who are going to be, again, lifted up. No injunction will be established except through you. This particular point, Darius should have clued in to a couple of things. First of all, that all the political leaders can agree on this. That would be the first indication something is probably off. And the second of which, God for 30 days, that's it? We don't have more time? In either case, he was, as the text indicates, willing to sign this. Verse 9, the king Darius signed the document that is the injunction. He signed it. He was intrigued by it. It fed his ego. It, It established exactly what he wanted. That's interesting. It's likely that they lied when they came in here and said all, verse 7, all the prefects, all the commissioners, all the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together. It is quite possible that they started this in the works and that Daniel knew of it. Notice verse 10. It says that when Daniel knew that the document was signed... Not that Daniel knew the document existed and was signed, but that it actually was signed. It is very possible that Daniel did know about this document being developed, heard of the rumors, and was in a difficult spot. If he fought, about, fought it as it was coming up, he would be looked at as one who was against Darius. So he waited, of course, and let this thing play out. That's possible. Or it's possible that they just hid their intentions behind the scenes the whole time and wanted to say nothing and try to force this through so that they could entrap Daniel. I'm suspecting Daniel knew of something in the works and he was waiting to see where was God's providence going to unfold, what was going to happen. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. There's a sense here that these... Satraps, these officials set the whole thing up. They clearly knew that Daniel was going to worship his God. They clearly knew that they had to pit Daniel's worship practices against the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so they were going to legalize activities that would condemn Daniel's practices. It's interesting today that there's nothing new under the sun. It's how people work today. It's not surprising that we have laws entitled freedom of choice, which would be laws that would be established to murder. We have laws around that would, again, set up to seemingly be good, but the inflicting harm. And so to Darius, 
to be a god for 30 days will seem to be compelling for him. And since all of his leaders, all of his fellow governors agreed to this, he was behind it. And they went one step further. They wanted to make it official so that it was established by the, as verse 8 indicates there, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. It was irrevocable once it was inaugurated. It must be carried out because behind it is the integrity of the very system in fact, as one commentator says this, Darius, visitors, argued for the ultimate authority behind the decree. They want it published in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repeated. This measure both underscores how serious the government regards the law and also for the conspirators it will cut away any wiggle room for the king and will force him to obey it. Even the king is going to be forced to carry out this edict. Please us to the dutiful disobedience. Notice verses 10 through 13. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, and had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before God as he had been previously doing. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplications before his God. And then they approached and spoke before the king. And they said uh, to the king, did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and they spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. We have caught him, is their charge. Again, this shows you the great spirituality of Daniel here. I mean, he knows he had significant options. He had many options during this time. Daniel could have decided, all right, for the next 30 days, I'm going to practice the worship of God in private. I'm not going to go in the public display I've been doing. In fact, everything that Daniel did, nothing was mandated, the timing. And yet, Daniel committed himself to doing what he had done previously, three times a day, worshiping. There's no direct laws given no direct commands that he was violating if he privately prayed. Here he was committing himself to demonstrate that he was not going to change anything, even under the threat of harm. He wasn't going to change his practices. And as I said, if verse 10 indicates that Daniel knew of this document, knew then that it was signed, knew that this law was brought in order, he had plenty of time to think through what he was going to do. Was he going to stop meeting? Was he going to stop praying? Was he going to hide in private and pray? What was Daniel going to do? Notice, of course, as the text indicates there, he continued in the same frequency three times a day. He continued in the same posture on his knees. He continued in the same location on his rooftop chamber, and he continued in the same content, praying and praising, having petition and praise, seeking God's help and favor. So even as Daniel here was under the threat of harm, he continued in the same devotion. Why? Because I believe that he was an exile, and while the pagans practiced their religion, he practiced his devotion to his God. 
And even this command, this law given, wasn't going to change his conscience. His heart had already been established to worship his God in this way, and he wasn't going to change it because a law came. He was devoted to his God despite what these authorities had commissioned. Obviously, he saw through that, saw through their veiled attacks. Their attacks were to destroy his worship, his dedication to his God, and he was staying resolute in his resolve. It's interesting that when he got caught, I think they, the guys came, it says there, then these men, verse 11, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before their God, before his God. They grab him, they go back to the king, to Darius, and they say to Darius there in verse 12, did you not sign this? Did you not make this known for these next 30 days? And of course, setting Darius up, and now notice the charge in verse 13. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And I think they waited for a few days, watched him do this a few times, setting up his guilt, and now coming in saying, we have the guy red-handed. Three times a day he's doing this. And of course, notice how they come in. They come into this, and, and before they even reveal who the guilty party is, they make sure they reestablish the guiltiness of him. Did you not sign this? Did you not put it into writing? Is it not part of the law of the Medes and Persians? Is it not irrevocable? Yes, it is all those things. Okay, well, Daniel's guilty. Not just because he had one event, but because he had multiple events three times a day. He is guilty. There's no doubt about it. This foreigner, notice again, verse 13 there, exposes the jealousy in their heart that one of the exiles from Judah... This foreigner, this outsider, this outcast, this man who is a corruption in our society is here and he's dishonoring you. And he throws it into your face three times a day and he's hostile to our way of life and he is corrupting our nation and he will not give honor to you. We're just here for your interest, O king, glorious king. We're here to protect you. Notice the response. You see the distress of Darius in verses 14 and 15. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Notice that. It was overwhelmed. Right, this was probably, if you're that group of individuals who marched in with the smoking gun, you have all the information, you set up the law, you reveal that Daniel's guilty, you're expecting a quick verdict. You're right. Where is he? Get him in here. You would be shocked if the answer is, oh, wait a second, how did this happen? Darius, as the verse indicates there, is distressed. Set his mind on. That is, he is trying to think, all right, how are we going to get out of this? And he did it all day long. It's likely that Daniel, on day two or three, was back to his morning prayers. Somewhere that morning he was arrested, taken before the king. And now we have all the rest of the morning through the afternoon heading to sunset and Darius is marching around trying to figure out what am I going to do? Obviously, they were expecting Darius's quick agreement. They didn't get it. That's probably what shocked them because they had Darius's hands tied. They had forced him into the corner they have the law on their side now. And Darius, in all of his strength, is doing everything he possibly could within himself to bring an answer, a different answer to this. But he wouldn't, and he couldn't execute it. To verse, then verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, 
Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians, and no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Imagine being in that group of authorities. All right, we got to remind the king to be king, to be the judge now. King, you can't escape this. You made this verdict, you you made this law, you signed it into order. Our whole nation is dependent on you carrying out this decree. You can't drop it. Think about if you were Daniel, that moment, in the moment of thinking, who is my hope? Who's going to protect me here? Darius is the only one who could protect me in this. Darius is the only one who could stop it. Who is going to stop me from being thrown to the savage beast? It has to be Darius. And Darius' hands are tied completely. Here's the great lesson learned in this. That oftentimes we're taken into trials and difficulties. And God does not save us from the trial. He saves us through the trial. Many of the difficulties we head into is impossible for man, even as, in this case, impossible for Darius to change, and God wasn't stopping it. He was allowing all the details to unfold to demonstrate the riches of his power. When we get tempted, when we're in the difficulties, to look for some human escape, for some man to deliver us, for someone to accomplish something on our behalf, we fix our eyes too low on the horizon. We ought to fix our eyes on God, who takes us through the trial, to help us endure through that trial. Because that is his plan. He's not saving us from the difficulty. He's going to take us through the difficulty. This, in fact, I think is exactly what Daniel is preparing for as he was praying. He was praying and focusing himself on the work of God. I love the implication that Dale Ralph Davis brings out. He brings out this in this section. He says that there are two, there's a two-pronged message for Israel's exiles here. First of all, see how gracious God is in giving you favor among your captors. And even the kings, therefore, don't despair. That's the first lesson. Here is Darius in distress when he's hearing Daniel is going to be thrown into the lion's den. He's in distress and he's doing everything he can to stop it. And he can't rescue Daniel himself. But the second lesson is this. See how costly it may prove to remain faithful when you are favored. Therefore, don't make an idol out of human favor. Daniel was being lifted up, and now he became the target. Daniel was being honored. Daniel was being successful. Daniel was accomplishing God's purposes, and now he became the target of the attacks. Two powerful lessons learned thus far. God's blessings seem to be double-edged at times. Seems to be double-edged that God gives blessing, God gives favor, and at the same time that favor becomes an idol for us that we want to hold on to it, we want to keep it at all costs, and that favor tends to be then the cause of jealousy in the wicked. Daniel, of course, sought favor from Darius, but recognized ultimate favor was going to come from God. Leads us to the next Section, verses 16 through 18, the den of deliverance. Notice, 16 through 18. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in, and he was cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him." 
This is again now. Here Darius carries out. His hands are tied. He is forced into turning over Daniel. He carries it out himself. And he puts Daniel in the lion's den. The idea here is probably more of a lion's pit. It would be a section where they could come in on the side. But then there would be an open section at top that you can look down in and watch what was happening. So more of a pit where a group of lions were at and these lions were there. And it is interesting as well that the lions as a form of punishment would have been a uniquely Medo-Persian punishment. They didn't use fire like the Babylonians. The Babylonians worshipped, or, or the Medo-Persians worshipped fire. They weren't going to use fire for, this, for punishment. The Babylonians used fire. The Medo-Persians were using the savage beasts to accomplish their purposes. So they brought Daniel into the pit of the beast. They put him down in there. They then sealed up the door and they sealed it with the signet ring of the king and the nobles. But something happened, an irony of ironies happened. That night, both Darius and the lions fasted. That whole night. Well, it is rather interesting. I mean, here would be the time when you would expect for Daniel to, to give us some details about what took place, about the number of roars that he heard, about the angel that came and stopped it all, why the, where, the, where the lion stayed that night, where he stayed that night. None of those details take place. In fact, the scene goes to verse 18. It goes to the king. Instead of talking about Daniel and what he was facing, we're going to talk about King Darius. That whole night he spent fasting. No entertainment was brought to him. That is, no distractions. Nothing was brought to him to distract him. No live music, no entertainment, nothing. He was there that whole night, as the text says there, fasting and his sleep fled from him. He was praying, most likely. When he, the very words that he gave to Daniel there in verse 16, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. He was praying in this way, oh God, deliver Daniel. Save him. Rescue him. Darius again was distressed and perplexed by this. And he, and it's interesting as this focus comes in, Daniel could have, Spent the time focused on his suffering. Could have focused on what he faced in that dark moment, in that time of distress, when he was unjustly thrown in there, when a law was purposely written against him, and that he was then accused, thrown in there, and now having to face the whole night in this lion's den. He could have spent all of his time there. Instead, he spends it on the king, in the suffering of the king. Why? Well, now we move to verses 19 through 22, the deliverance of Daniel. Notice the deliverance of Daniel. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice, And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. May God, my God, sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. Love the details here. Darius had a troubled night, barely sleeping, no entertainment, fasting the whole night, wakes up at daybreak, at dawn, and moves with haste to the lion's den, heading down there. Pretty sure if you're every one, all the other officials and you're seeing this, you're recognizing that Darius is in distress. There's no way a king is getting up that early, heading out this quickly to take a look at what's taking place here. He cries out there, 
So he looks in, are you okay, Daniel? And finds that Daniel has been preserved. The lions have not harmed me. Been innocent. And I love Daniel's words there in verse 22. They've not harmed me in as much as I've been found innocent before God or before him. And also towards you, king, I have committed no crime. I haven't done anything wrong. He is, there is the deliverance, which leads then to the deceiver's doom, verses 23 and verse 24. Then the king was pleased, and he gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he, was, he had trusted his God. I'll stop right there for a second. It was... Complete deliverance, not a partial deliverance, but an entire complete deliverance, not a single mark on him. He was completely healthy, no difficulty at all, and he was released. Now, I could tell you at this very moment, if you are one of the satraps, one of the commissioners who wrote that law, you are terrified at this moment for good reason. First of all, you had to strong-arm the king into a law that he then didn't want to carry out. Second of all, your plan failed. It's the next morning, Daniel is alive, which leads then to the demise of these men. Notice verse 24, the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And this is at times some have argued how Daniel escaped. And one of the arguments that Daniel escaped because there were only a couple of lions in there and he just strategically moved around and stayed out of the harm's way. Okay, wait a second. You want me to believe an 80-year-old is marching around hiding from all these lions? That's the logical answer? And sorry if you are in that age range thinking, yeah, I could do that. Verse 24 unmasks all that altogether. I mean, think about this. He says, again, it was the officials with their wives and their children. Let's just kind of get a range on this. Well, we know that there were 120 satraps selected in the area, and there were three commissioners. We can take Daniel out, so you have 122. Let's just say a third of those. You have 30, for example, 30 satraps. So that's 30 men, 30 wives, 30 children. There's 90 at a conservative number. And then let's just add a more liberal number. You could be upwards of 400. 122 satraps with 122 wives, with 122 children, and a few of them probably had a few others. 400 would be an easy number at the top end. So anywhere between 90 and 400 were thrown into that pit. We say, well, maybe 90 is too high of a number. Well, at least 30. At least possible that that group that came in and tried to tell him back in first, verse 15, Darius, by the way, you signed this. You need to carry it out this very night. Probably at least 10 of those guys went in there to strong arm Darius. So you could have at least 30. That's the low end. 30, 90, 400, whatever it was tossed into that den, and as the text says there in verse 24, they were immediately overpowered and crushed before they even got to the bottom. This isn't, again, a group of lions that just were not very interested. They were ready to devour at a moment's notice, and they were stopped by the angel of God. Daniel was protected. Which leads to the last point, the decree affirming divine glory. The decree affirming divine glory, verse 25 through 28. Then Darius, the king, wrote to all the peoples, 
nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs the signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the divine decree, a decree giving glory to God from this pagan king, And again, we have another chapter ending just as the previous where a pagan king comes and sees the power of God and exalts the glory of God throughout his entire kingdom. There is no God like Daniel's God, the living God. There was no one like him. God will not be mocked. And again, I think in all of this, that God is preparing Cyrus preparing him to then give glory to God by releasing the Israelites and accomplishing God's purposes. As we're going to see unfolded by the time we get to chapter 9 and we see God's final eschatological plan, all of this is moving according to his good purposes. God is accomplishing his purposes. And even these pagan kings are having to realize that they're Kingdom, their authority, their power does not match the power of God's. You know, it is interesting, just thinking, reflecting on Daniel's story here. As we are God's people, and God is moving and directing, and we're proclaiming his message, we shouldn't be surprised when there is hostility against us, when those who are unrighteous oppose. What's a shock to us is, it seemingly is inexplicable. To us, it's a shock because we're showing love, we're showing care, we're showing righteousness, we're helping to protect, and yet the wickedness occurs where people, again, are bitter and jealous. We shouldn't be surprised by this because the world first hated Christ, they're going to hate us. The wicked here, even in Daniel's time, they hated Daniel because he was an exile, because he had been committed to the one true God, so it shouldn't be surprised, even when Daniel brought prosperity to the kingdom. One commentator concludes his words like this. He says, Charles Schultz's very first Peanuts cartoon shows a boy and a girl sitting on some steps by a sidewalk. And another boy approaches them in a distance, and the boy says to the girl, Well, here comes old Charlie Brown. Charlie passes in front of them, and the same lad says, Good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir. And after Charlie passes beyond the earshot, both boy and girl look after him, and the boy says, Good old Charlie Brown. How I hate him. So out of the blue, he states this. So Daniel 6 He says, admonishes God's people. Don't think that Daniel's an exceptional situation. It is rather an exemplary one. This is the way it is with God's servants in the world. It is honored to their face and rejected behind. Because why? Man is hostile to the things of God. And I would say this, if you are standing in God's message and you're proclaiming God's word and you're accomplishing God's purposes, do not be surprised if you are undermined, criticized, attacked, mocked, even there's malicious attempts to harm because the God of this world is hostile to the things of God. But again, for us, the lesson that we've learned through this story isn't God isn't there to protect us from that hostility. God is there to take us through that hostility. 
God isn't there to remove it so we don't have any harm, any conflict, any difficulties. God is there so that in those difficulties, we move through those difficulties and we bring glory to Him. Maybe He just might find it His pleasure to send an angel to protect us in the midst of it. Or maybe it will be within His pleasure to take glory in our suffering like Christ suffered. Whatever the case is, our hope shouldn't change any because we know the God we worship. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this marvelous example in Daniel. Certainly when we are tempted to to be despairing at the fiery trial that comes against us, when we are tempted to be overwhelmed at the thought that our life might be taken from us or inflicted with great harm, It's in those moments that we ought to be like Daniel, regularly praying, depending upon you, trusting not in the power of men and the wisdom of men, trusting not in earthly authorities to deliver us. We trust in the one true God. We know you're accomplishing your good purposes. We pray, help us to know your purposes, to know your will and your way so that all things we're trusting in you And help us to fix our eyes on the glories to come so that we would not idolize any earthly thing. And when we are tempted to grow weary in doing good, may we turn our attention to passages like this that remind us to take courage in the midst of our suffering. Because you are faithful in all of it. You are faithful when the calamity arises. You are faithful when we are thrown into pits. And you are faithful when we are delivered. In all of it, your faithfulness never changes. And so may our faith never waver as well. May we always be confident in the truth. May we always be encouraged. May we always be speaking your truth. And may it be that even pagan leaders see the riches of the gospel on display in us and they are swayed because they see you on display and your good purposes. So in all of this, Father, may our faith increase as we fix our eyes on these marvelous examples. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.